Welcome to a Baseball America Draft Podcast, along with J.J. Cooper and Clint Longnecker. I'm John Manuel. Don't forget Baseball America's draft offer. You don't have much time left to subscribe now, but if you do, subscribe now and receive one extra month of access with any premium content subscription. Get the complete Baseball America 500 with scouting reports and video by subscribing at ba.com slash subscribe. It's baseballamerica.com, not ba. Baseballamerica.com slash subscribe. Uh, JJ, I'm going to let you take it from here as you play the DJ and we will play the rappers. <laughs> well, guys, we, 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 I feel like we say this every year, but I do feel like that it is especially true this year that this draft is as wide open and as crazy and as hard to predict as any we can remember. I, if the Astros are picking number one, that seems to be generally the case because they're not ones to, to really say, here's who we're going to number one, and then the rest of the board kind of lines up. But that being said, John, I mean, you do our mock drafts. How hard has it been to kind of try to divine who's going where uh, as you do your mock drafts? I can't really tell if it's harder this year than past years because I haven't always done our mock drafts, but I've, I've contributed to them. It feels like it's a lot harder. It feels like it's a lot less certain. And it feels like that's because of the new CBA climate. I know it's the third year, but it's still fairly new. That's because of the Astros at the top. They're very tight-lipped. Plus, I think it's fair to say this, Clint. You correct me if I'm wrong, but the Astros don't have, like, Jeff Luno and Mike Elias don't have dozens of years in the business doing this and lots of old, long-standing relationships to rely on. They don't have that network. So when you hear it with some scouts who've been doing this for a long time, they know everybody and word gets around. That doesn't happen with the Astros. So that cuts down on the on the on the um, rumors. And then the Astros are floating a lot of the rumors themselves because they're trying to drive prices down. Um, agents are frozen into silence by the NCAA, Ben Wetzler, James Paxton, you name it, Andy Oliver. It's so just the climate. The climate has just everything that's happened in the last five years has been to make the climate one of fewer rumors, fewer words getting out. And I think Major League Baseball likes it that way. And I think that Major League Baseball encourages it because they want the draft to be a good television show. So I don't think that's the driving force. I just think it's been all these little factors around the edges that have combined to make it. And then you put into the biggest factor to me, Clint, is the volatility of the class. It's a pitcher-heavy class. And the year that did 2005 when Jim Callis got 18 for 18, it was a hitter-heavy class. It was uh, Jeff Clement, Troy Tulowitzki, Ryan Zimmerman, Ryan Braun. These are the guys who came out, Justin Upton. That's who, so it was hitters, and it was hitter after hitter. Jacoby Ellsbury later in the first round, Andrew McCutcheon. The hitters line up, and that doesn't happen with pitchers. And uh, so those things all make it volatile for me. If you're going to look at the strengths of the class, just from a horizontal standpoint, high school pitching, by far the most volatile commodity in the entire draft process. Because so, it's the most plentiful. Exactly. Yeah, and, and honestly, the diversity of the arms here, you have you have guys left, right, tall, big. You, you really just have a plurality of, of different body types that you know teams can take any, any which any which way that they would really like. But uh, just to bring it back to the top of the draft, um, the way we, we have it right now, I think four of our top five are pitchers, and uh, in the top three, um, it seems like that those guys all have a shot. Uh, I mean, th- those are the consensus top three guys. Is, is that right, John? Yeah, I, th- I think so, and. I guess it would nothing would surprise me. I guess it wouldn't shock me if you know Nick Gordon, if the Astros pull a deal and, and draft the Nick Gordon. It wouldn't shock me, but it really would surprise me significantly if the Astros 
cut a deal with Aaron Nola. I don't think they should do that. I like Aaron Nola, but I'm not there with Aaron Fit, you know, and saying that Aaron Nola is going to be a frontline guy. <laughs> Book it. You know, I'm not there. <laughs> but would it surprise me if they did that? It really wouldn't because uh, I do get the sense talking to people the front of the draft, the back of the draft, the middle of the first round, all of it. There's no $6 million player in this draft. That's the consensus. There's no Garrett Cole in this draft. Not That's the consensus. Do I, you know, I don't even know if I agree with that. I think Carlos Rodon's kind of a lot like Garrett Cole, frankly. He's left-handed, doesn't throw as hard, but similar profile. But And Brady Aiken's really good, and Tyler Cole looks extremely unique. But in this draft system, with these rules, I don't think anybody wants to step out on any of those players. And it does seem like with that, part of the reason there is so much uncertainty, like you just said, if, if teams at the top are thinking there's no $6 billion player in this draft, and the first slot is to pay a guy well over seven, and the second spot slot is to pay him at slot well over six, Right. then it really does come down to, it, it becomes a, a dangerous balance that a team makes because on one hand, you can say, well, we like all these guys about the same, so we want to see the guy who get the best price. But on the other hand, the per- correct me if I'm wrong, but the purpose of why you spend the last year doing this is to hopefully at the end of it end up somewhat convicted on who you believe should be the guy you take at you know at one one or one two. Yeah, you should. You should have strong conviction on that player if you're gonna be at the top of the draft. You should want to have that player in your organization. I don't think that's asking too much. And it feels like teams really have questions about that, Clint. Like how much do they want these guys? And then, you know, the teams may say there are no six million dollar players in this draft. Well, I think Alex Jackson begs to differ. He's hit 47 home runs in San Diego section with these bats. Nobody ever hit more than 47. He's tied for the all-time record. And those are some dudes with some nuclear bats, or even when they were pronounced nuclear. <laughs> and he was hitting those kind of home runs. And it's not like there hasn't been talent in San Diego in the past. So, you know, I think he thinks he's a $6 million player. I think Brady Aiken thinks he's a $6 million player. I know Carlos Rodon thinks he's a $6 million player. I bet you Tyler Kolick would like $6 million to throw 100 miles an hour. So there's one. the teams have their valuation, but the players have theirs, and how hard you're going to stick to that number, I just think that's really tough to divine, even three days out, Clint, like we are. And yeah. I just don't have a strong conviction. Maybe the teams have a strong conviction of who they want, J.J. They want that player at their price. I don't have a strong conviction that I know who they want. And with Brady Aiken, I mean, if a high school left-hander were to ever make the case to be a $6 million guy, he would be it. I mean, he's given them every indication that he fits that sort of profile. But we know historically at the top of the draft, college over high school. Right. And you have to go back to what, 1991 to find the, the yeah. last high yep. school left-hander? Only two high school, only two high school pitchers ever drafted 1-1. And that's David Clyde and Brian Taylor. And neither one worked out well. So... Brady Aiken, though, let's talk about why he is, that in our mind, the best prospect in the draft. I think that there are things that separate him. Number one, comparing to Brian Taylor and uh, David Clyde, he has way more track record in history. Showcase era that we're in, his 18U national team performance for USA Baseball was exemplary. Um, and then you want to combine that with San Diego versus rural North Carolina and Texas, David Clyde in the 70s. That's, you know, that Texas fireball, that's kind of cool. But San Diego high school competition in 2014, about as good as it gets anywhere in the country. He's having to face Alex Jackson some of the time. So he's got this track record, Clint, that 
You just don't see. I mean, we saw him here in the Breakthrough Series two years ago playing for USA Baseball's uh, Breakthrough Series um, as a kind of a dumpy, pear-shaped bodied sophomore, but he was already prominent on this showcase circuit. He was facing Courtney Hawkins in that game. I mean, you know, I think that might have been the starting pitching matchup, to be honest with you. So Brady Aiken's been on the scene since he was a sophomore. So scouts have a, a deep history with Brady Aiken that they didn't have with high school pitchers 10 years ago, 20 years ago. His junior year at the NHSI, I think he struck out 13 yeah. uh, without allowing a single walk with a lot of scouting. He had independence because that team was obviously very talented. I had Steven Gonzalez and a few other different guys. What, what I want to ask you, Clint, is, is if he wasn't a high school left-hander, is that really the sole reason that he's not considered the clear number one, like where you say, if you know, you said there's a preference college over high school. If we were talking about him and it wasn't the fact that he's a high school lefty and high school lefties don't go number one, would this would we not be having this discussion? I think you can make a strong argument for that case. I mean, when we entered the year, he was the number four high school prospect, and that was on the strength of his pitch ability, his command, his build. Right. And then everything has taken a step forward. First, first, uh, like public scouting opportunity was a scrimmage, and he pops ninety-seven. Yep, right off and the this bat. This is a guy. People even liked him in the top half of the first round, potentially when he was eighty-eight to ninety-one, like he was over the summer. And his velocity takes at least a grade, if not two grade, jump, depending upon what start he he was at, and and the curveball. I mean, at the end of the day, he's gonna he's gonna walk away with three pitches that are at least plus the changeup. Has always been there for him. He showed great feel as an amateur. So everything could be at least six is on the card for him. Yeah, that's what, that's what so, it sounds so like to me. Th- there's there's nothing more that he could do. I was gonna say it, it, that that's yeah, what I was that, gonna that, ask. That, you. That's the argument. The, the argument is is he is it's he's a high school lefty because yep. there's nothing that you say. Well, I'd like to see more out of him than this. But to he go back the with the ball, commands it down in the zone, curveball change, improved throw, body, throw, throws a slider, great body, and oh yeah, he's one of the younger players in the entire class. Doesn't turn eighteen until the fall. It, but to go back uh, using past history, Clayton Kershaw coming out, you know, a few years ago, a similar profile. He did not go one one, and he didn't come out similar to you know close to one one. Even as an athletic left-hander, you know, who was considered probably the top high school arm in that class. Which, that was also the height, though, of Moneyball. Right. That was like run screaming from high school pitching with the whole industry. I, except for, and, except and for Logan Zags. Logan might say, you run screaming and I'll draft them. Yeah, Thank exactly. You. Yeah, he was probably handing out copies of Moneyball <laughs> to owners of other teams that he thought were threats. I mean, so yeah. But, I mean, he's... Aaron said that you did the kind of the side by side comparison in his report with Clayton Kershaw's report, and they were pretty comparable. For the readers, go to go to baseballamerica.com, pull up both Brady Aiken's uh, current write up for this year, and go to Clayton Kershaw. Go to his player page, find the draft write up. You'll have to be a subscriber at baseballamerica.com slash subscribe if you're not already for our draft order. Free extra month, exactly. The similarities are absolutely amazing. With their Team USA experience and then on the summer showcase circuit, their velocity was almost exactly the same at 88 to 91. Their height and weight, almost exactly the same at 6'3", 6'4", to 210, somewhere in that range. Plus fastball, plus curveball. And oh yeah, Aiken has a better change and he offers a fourth offering, so... And when you, when you line, them, line them up that way, coming out, it's hard not to say that Aiken is a better prospect now than Kershaw was coming out of high school. I'll say that Kershaw in his report seems like he pitches consistently a little bit harder, more 90-96. Like Aiken's more like in that 90-93 range, right? Touching higher. I know he bumped the 97s, but he's, 
hasn't really pitched in that 90, 95, 96 range. I took that 90 to 96 to mean probably more in the, in the similar range. Nine, 91 to 93, somewhere in that range. Okay. Scra- scraping four. Right. Scraping six. So the only difference to me is that maybe a little bit leaner body for Kershaw. Maybe a little more snap to the breaking ball. But they they sound awfully comparable. You know. So when Aaron told me that you had done that kind of side-by-side, that was eye-opening. No. Okay. So that's the case for Brady Aiken number one. John, I'll kick it to you for this. <laughs> Because if anyone wants to make the case for Carlos Rodon, number one, what is the case for Carlos Rodon? I mean, I think he's got sevens on the card. You know, he's certainly got a seven in the slider, and if you want to go eight, you can go eight with it. Um, He has not pitched with a seven fastball this year, but we've seen a seven fastball out of him. We've seen games where he has had 92 to 95 with some giddy-up on the fastball. And, you know, to me – you're looking for someone who's going to be in the major leagues. If you're taking somebody 1-1, they're going to be in the major leagues, you're guessing, in 2015. You're, you're, if, if you're drafting him and you're the Astros, you don't pitch him very much this year at all because he did pitch a lot, and now he's been done for two weeks. You might ramp him up again to get ready for instructs. Maybe you won't want to send him out to the fall league, which is kind of analogous to the false, the college schedule he's already been on. Let him pitch once a week in the fall league, maybe. I know it would be a bad idea to get his feet wet. Is it plausible, Clint, that for Carlos Rodon, if he's good Carlos, for him to be in the major leagues for 75 to 100 innings in 2015? I don't think that's implausible if he's good Carlos. If he repeats his best, I I think that's that's definitely in play. And then in 2016, you're talking about a guy who's probably going to be a full-time member of your big league rotation. So how much money does he save you? So that's the argument, is that if you believe in good Carlos, if you believe that um, on a different throwing schedule, because he had a different throwing program with USA team than he had with NC State, more long toss, a little bit different routine, and he was better with USA. If you believe that you can unlock the consistency aspect of Carlos Rodon that we've seen in the second halves of seasons, and he was honestly better early in his freshman year when he threw more frequently on shorter rest, his stuff was better. That's when he was hitting 96-97. Um, you know, consistently. If you believe that that's Carlos Rodon, that's his true Carlos Rodon, and, and you as the Astros with Brent Strom being your big league pitching coach and the pitching development that your staff did when you were with St. Louis, if you believe that in that staff, then this is the guy I think who has the best combination of body, stuff, feel for the slider, for this complete separator pitch, and then on top of it, the aura and the confidence to be a true number one, a guy who will not run for being the number one pick ever a guy who will not run from the spotlight a guy who will not run from being the face of your franchise if that's what you're looking for a number one overall pick i think carlos rodon is that guy but i understand why you think he would not be and i talked to enough scouts who have questions about his athleticism and his question that his ability to to repeat uh his delivery enough to be a consistent frontline starter now i understand the doubts i think he can be that but i'm not a scout and i understand the teams who know more about this why they have their doubts. Along the lines where you say, when would, when could he arrive? One thing I was working on today was uh, look at our top three college pitchers, pitchers ticking top three, 2000 on. And the thing that jumps out is, is that the guys who are successful in a lot of cases, they make a pit stop right. in the minors. I mean, that's just time after time. Steven Strasburg, Chris Sale, Tim Lincecum, Mark Cryer, you know, Justin Verlander. These guys... Do not spin long right. before they are in the big leagues. And they don't need to spin long. And if we do see Carlos Rodon at his best, 
He's the kind of guy who wouldn't need to spin long. You know, the high, you know, if you went back and looked up the high school guys, I bet you'd find the top high school guys don't spend long in the minor leagues either. Because you were talking about Clayton Kershaw. He didn't spend long in the minor leagues at all. Jose Fernandez, I know he's hurt right now. Yeah, moment of silence. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, like, Jose Fernandez did not spend long in the minor leagues at all. Like, one year, basically. Year and a half, tops. So, the top guys, the best guys uh, who have premium stuff and throw strikes with it, they don't last in the minor leagues. Oh, Matt Harvey wasn't in the minor leagues long. Just zoom right to the big leagues. Why stick around in the minor leagues? If you're throwing strikes with plus stuff, you won't be in the minor leagues long. Period. And that's what you're looking for at the front of this draft. So that, I understand, again, why there are those questions with Carlos Rodon. Because, Clint, you saw a lot more of them this year even than I did. I've seen him a lot over three years. But just on those Friday nights, the fastball command was just extremely spotty. Yeah. And that's that's the biggest thing he has to worry about. Yeah. And dude, I'm really glad that you brought up guys getting to the major leagues quickly because we just had a conversation with the scout last week who talked about a guy who did not go in the top three, but Andrew Miller, who, who went in the top ten, who did get to the major leagues very quickly, and he knew Miller very well, and he said, you know, the slider was obviously a great pitch for him, a plus pitch, and hitters were able to lay off that, and once he was in the major leagues, it was really he could not spot up his fastball quite at that level, so that was why he struggled, and to see the other, the flip side of Carlos I think he fits some of those same descriptors if yep. he were to get to the major leagues quickly. We know that the slider is one of the best pitches on the planet when it is on. It could be now, an easy pitch for someone to lean on almost like a crutch at the expense of fastball command, change of development, especially if you're moving to that relief role. No question. Yeah, and there were some starts early in the year when quite a few evaluators were in to see him, and that was that was what people thought. There was, there was one start where he threw over 50 sliders, and guys commonly just walked away from that start saying, the fastball has backed up because he's just throwing so many sliders, and his fastball was sitting 90 to 92, touching a little higher. It doesn't sound crazy. Jonathan Gray, his first year after he signed, they basically said, we know you got the slider. Put it in your back pocket for a while while you work on developing your changeup. That's really, I think Gray's a pretty good comp for Rodon as well because of their physicality. And that these are not, you know, I've, I've, I've used Garrett Cole as a comp just because Garrett Cole... Now, Garrett Cole throw, threw harder, but they had very similar junior seasons performance-wise. Garrett Cole's was actually worse, you know, but where there was a lot of scrutiny and things didn't go well, both teams were better when those teams, when those guys were sophomores. You know, when, they, when he was Garrett Cole was a sophomore, UCLA went to the College Series finals. When Garrett Cole was a junior, they didn't make out of regionals, and that's with him and okay. Trevor Bauer. So, I mean, UCLA was more disappointing, really, their year than NC State, although they did go to regionals, so... Maybe they weren't. Um, but they're UCLA. They, they had two first-round picks. They are UCLA, though. Yeah. I mean, so the point is, they both struggled as juniors, and yet I don't think his college performance matters for Carlos so much as how, why he struggled at times this year. And the way he struggled was fastball command. And then, you know, you watch him. He doesn't hold runners. When a runner gets on base, uh, opposing ACC teams exploit it. Yeah. That's, the, that's his, the chink in the armor. For him is one sixth of the plate. Right. So there's a slow delivery and then there's just fielding the ball. It's not Taylor Cherry, to put it in a local context, who's this two hundred and seventy pound right hander for North Carolina. But it's not he's not, he's not gonna be confused with Greg Maddox saying he's not Jim Cat. Do the smaller things that add up over the long run to right. something bigger than that to help cut your ERA from what it should be. But more I'll pitch in the peripheral. But to me, more than that, it's that it makes you doubt the athleticism. Yes. To me, that's where the athleticism doubts come in. Because there are starts where you see him repeat the delivery and you see him command the fastball. Not so much of the arm side, but he can command the glove side and the slider's dirty. But just the consistency, and then you see those little things 
that make you it all adds up to question the athleticism you so you got those those two guys and then it really uh, again the argument in some ways it seems like if if Alex Jackson ended up being the the number one pick could there be an argument made that with the depth of pitching talent in this draft and the the paucity of true impact bats in this draft that if you say went an Alex Jackson 1-1 or a 1-2 you know that you're going to be able to get it's not going to be the same arm, but you're going to be able to get another quality arm in, you know, with your second pick. And by the time you even get around to number 35, 30, 40, the bats are going to be a whole lot less uh, available. What do you think, Clint? Yeah, I think I think you make a great point, especially if you are a team that has multiple comp selections. There are still going to be some really good pitchers there from from 31 to 50. So right, the Astros really- have the Astros do have comp picks. Yeah. So if they, I think specifically to this situation, if, the, if you're the Astros or the, the Marlins, Marlins two. Who, two who had multiple comp picks, now well, they only have one. one. They traded away one this week, which, this weekend. Very strange move, I thought. But um, I think that tells you they're not enamored of this draft class, Clint. But but Alex Jackson, do you think he's a one-one talent? I don't think yeah. he is. I think maybe, maybe just a little bit short of that. But just to go back to track record, which we spoke about earlier with with high school players, you know, with Brady Aiken. He has about as good a track record as somebody can have from the hitting side. He was a known entity. I mean, I think uh, he had the by far. Aaron Fitt wrote him up as the number one prospect at the area code games right. as a junior. And you still talk to scouts, and they can't get out of their mind the balls that he was hitting. You know, as an underclassman there at the area code games, line shots right off the center field wall. Um, and he really just has a great combination of just natural feel to hit and power. Yeah, and you know, I guess the the other issue is. High school catchers used to dominate the top of the draft. And, you know, three of the first seven drafts, because three of the first eight, high school catcher went 1-1. Wow. Steve Chilcott, Mike Ivey, Danny Goodwin. Then, strangely, the trend abated. <laughs> <laughs> I can't understand why. Um, you've had one high school catcher since then go 1-1, but it was Joe Maurer. So, and then there's the other question is, this is a position change guy. Yes, he can catch, but the bat is so advanced that maybe he winds up moving to an outfield corner. So, you know, Bryce Harper was a high school catcher who wound up being a junior college catcher, outfielder, third baseman, wherever he wanted to do in junior college. You know, I could see Alex Jackson, I guess, being 1-1, but he is a Boris Corporation. Uh, you know, he's with the, the Boris Corporation, advises him, and uh, I don't think he's going to take a haircut at one. No. I, don't think it, I don't think Aiken who's represented by Casey Close, Excel Sports Management, I don't think he's going to take a haircut at one. So if you're looking for a deal, I just think it's going to be tough to cut a deal with these guys. Because they, again, they view themselves as $6 million players. We should probably move on. But, but I was going to one last thing with Jackson, which is we talk about a catcher who could move that the bats, you know, the bats ahead of the, the glove. Which one of those guys, first-round talent, talent even, has stuck at catcher in the last five to ten years. Because I, I can't think of – I mean, the guys you just mentioned, a couple of them, Will Myers is another guy that jumps out to me. I can't think of one of those guys who ended up staying at catcher because usually the thing about it is is that the bat's ahead. It's just really hard to say, you know what, we'll live with the extra two to three years that it may take for the for the glove to catch up. That's a great call, yeah. It's not it's not also even you know uh, their ability. It's just team preference and, and team needs. Yeah, I just, yeah, I mean, I've talked to people at the top of the draft who think that him moving off the position is an issue. And that's why you can't take him first or second. 
You don't take a position move guy first, second, third in the draft. I've had scouting directors tell me that, and he's not a sure thing position move. But the, like you said, he's to me he's very similar to Will Myers. That's a great comp. I mean, they're not physically alike, but the overall picture is very similar. Yeah. Feel for that, hitting, power. So that's so to me, you're really talking about a high school outfielder first overall on it. I do think that position players historically, I've had this. This is not an original idea. This is again listening to the smart people. Um, that high school and position players get undervalued at the top of the draft. Pitchers get overvalued historically, and there's been more value in position players at the top of the draft. You want to look at that Clayton Kershaw draft 2006. There are a lot of bad pitchers taken in front of him, but then Evan Longoria too. So if you redid that draft and you argued that you'd rather have Longoria than Kershaw, I'll listen. Because Evan Longoria is special, too. So there's the good argument for Alex Jackson. I will say, among all the position players in this draft, Alex Jackson is the only one I would think of taking first overall. Because it sounds like Nick Gordon, there are not a lot of sevens on his card either. It's a lot of sixes, and he's a kind of a dirtbag ball player type, right? Instincts and makeup are, are what would make him... I think he gets undersold for the instincts because he's got a big league dad and, frankly, because he's African-American. I think, that gets, I think his instincts get undersold. Because of that, I think people look at him as a black shortstop whose dad played in the big leagues and think he's a tool shed. And he's toolsy, but I think the instincts get undersold big time. Guys who have seen him a lot defensively say that you go in, you know, if you'd come in and just see him for a game or two, you might not walk away thinking right. the defense was that great. But the defense is going to grow on you. And a few people have said that they had to just bet on the character and makeup of a single high school guy in this entire class. That I've heard that, too. I had, a heard great, that too. I had a great conversation with a longtime scout who's down in Florida and when D was coming out of coming out of the draft, there was a private workout, and Nick was out there taking ground balls. And Nick was twelve years old at the Don't time. Don't forget D Gordon also. Like that was a really unique situation. He was like on a junior college or D two team, but he wasn't eligible, so that was like a deep, deep cut. Mm-hmm. So this was this was the only time you're going to get to see him was in workouts. Exactly. And he's taking ground balls with his brother. He's, he's looking good out there, showing some flash. And he turns all these evaluators and say, "You think my brother's good? <laughs> I'm going to be a lot better. You just wait." <laughs> And he's certainly proving that right now with his draft stock. Great story. How much, this sounds silly, but how much does D. Gordon's turnaround this year play a factor? I, I know it sounds you know silly, but in some ways, I mean, scouts can care about you know bloodlines and all that. And the fact that D. Gordon has turned himself into a productive big league player this year compared to kind of the bust that he was the last couple of years, I, I can't have, help but think that help, that helps Nick Gordon a little bit. Honestly, I'm not sure if it does. I mean, it, it might for some people, but I'm not sure how much it does really impact. Just, they're, they're they're just different players. They are different. They're different. I don't I don't I think it would I think it would not be it, it's 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 just helpful a little bit, but I don't I think it would hurt him more if D Gordon had been a complete bust and if there'd been some off field thing. They're different people, obviously, so that's a big factor. But I mean, I, I don't think it hurts to see the big brother doing well in the big leagues. I don't think it hurts. And speaking to and speaking to some team officials, this is kind of interesting when you think about D Gordon, a guy who went in the fourth round. There are a few people that actually think that D actually just on when you just look at the raw tools actually had better tools. But going back to what we just spoke right. about, the instincts, the makeup, that is what makes him a better player. At, once you get past that, you we just run through those guys, and then after that, we you know we haven't mentioned Tyler Kolick, but put Kolick in that first group, and then it really gets crazy. It seems like is that. At that point, it truly can be, it's which guy do you like, especially who is, I'll, I'll throw it out for you guys, who's the next college pitcher? There are a lot of candidates. That's been, that's been a big question. The second college pitcher after Carlos Rodon. I mean, I think we both 
thought that the best college pitcher we've seen was Kyle Freeland. That's who the best guy we've seen in person. I think it, the consensus is that there is no consensus. <laughs> I mean, I think Jeff Hoffman was going to be, and then he had Tommy John surgery. Aaron Noble is the best performer, but outside of Aaron Fit, I can't find an evaluator who thinks that he's a frontline starter. Uh, Kyle Freeland, I think we are convicted, but because he was so good when we saw him, and he's been so good all year. But there was this medical report scare about Kyle Freeland that we wrote about in last week's mock. And then on top of that, the, you know, I just have had too many scouts call it a reliever delivery. And that scares some people. Sean Newcomb right now, I think, Clint is probably the consensus number two college pitcher, and that just stuns me. You saw him it, this year. I mean, did you see a secondary pitch that was average? The Present change, average? The changeup flashed. It did. But, yeah, it is surprising, but just the – just by the fact that he is healthy with all these other guys. There are so many questions. He has been a constant. He's been a statistical performer, even though the walks have been a little higher than you'd like. You know, guys just don't pick pick up the ball on him. You know, he's – what did he go? Um, he, I mean, he went a long time without give, without giving up. An early, I think run, it was right? about – it was more than 30 innings to begin the year. Um, so, yeah, he, he really has finished strong throughout the season. I mean, pretty much 92 to 94, touching, touching some sixes. And, yep. and it is just so easy. That's what stands out is the body with him, and that's just what they want guys to look. It's strike-throwing arm action with present control. I don't know if you'd say anybody has the present fastball command outside of Aaron Nola in this class because Aaron Nola does. Freeland certainly showed it, but I can't get scouts to say that he's got present command. I couldn't get him to do it. So, yeah, those, those are the guys. It's just not a great group, J.J., of college pitchers. They've all got a hickey. You know, Freeland has the delivery issues that some people don't like. Some recoil at the end, I guess is the way you'd call it. You know, Newcomb's secondary pitches, neither one grades above average, certainly. You're projecting on the secondary stuff, and it's very small school competition. Nola, you know, the changeup has been plus in the past. It's not now. The breaking ball flashes 55-ish, but he's never going to have a true hammer breaking ball. Um, You just go on down the list, and everybody else has Tommy John surgery, you know? I mean... It really feels that way, which to me opens it up. And then, and then there's Tyler Beatty, who's the complete X factor. Yeah, he's the guy. I mean, when we entered the season, he was the number three college pitcher on the board between or behind Rudon, Rudon and Hoffman, and he has stumbled, you know, thoroughly throughout the stretch. I mean, as you mentioned, you know, some scouts were saying that he was he had a thirty breaking ball two starts ago, but he had one of his best starts the entire season. You know, only just adding to uh, to the mystery in regionals. In yeah. regionals, you know, just just a few days ago. His fastball sat in the mid nineties. There were reports that it was up to ninety nine, uh, but when you look at you know just putting his entire college career in context, look at his walk rate, which is above four. I, I went back and I looked at every single college pitcher who won the first round from two thousand thirteen to two thousand nine, which was a sample of forty four pitchers, and yeah. he has the second highest career walk rate of anybody who fits into that sample. So. Why do you want college guys? Because of the track record, and the track record is spotty for him. Who's number one? Most walks. Oh, it is uh, it is Alex Meyer, who's obviously a pretty unique guy. I believe he's the tallest guy ever drafted in the first round at six foot nine. So it's it's a completely different well, case. Yeah. One other guy we need to talk about is is another guy who kind of is a, a wild card is Brandon Finnegan, who also had had a much for him. He made himself probably a little bit of money on uh, during the regional. I think he did, uh, JJ. He was up to 95 on Friday. He pitched into the ninth inning for TCU, which didn't give up any runs basically all weekend. 
one run here, one run there. That had a 20-some inning game. Thankfully for Brandon Finnegan, he wasn't using that game. I thought, my, I thought he might come out and pitch right-handed in that game. But TCU does have pitcher depth, um, so gives Chip Schlossnagel credit. They actually handled their pitchers quite well over there. Um, I guess the other factor with Brandon Finnegan is that was his longest start since April 17th. So, um, But the people I talked to at the back of the first round this year all think he's in play from the middle of the first round down. So just talking to those guys over the weekend, I think he's back in play anywhere from 15, 16, you know, 15s of the Angels. I know the Angels have had interest in Finnegan. 16, the Diamondbacks, I know they've been tied to Finnegan as well. I do think that if Brandon Finnegan, you go back to the middle of April and go forward, if he'd been healthy I think, and he'd been consistent, I think he was in the mix to go fourth overall. That's where I had him in the first mock draft. I didn't pull that out of my rear end. That was He was in play there. And it, that you want a guy with plus pitches, it was plus fastball, plus changeup, plus slider on a lot of scouts' cards. And that's why you have three sixes, you're going to be in the mix to go that high. But 5'11", 185, a little effort to the, to the delivery. I don't think the jury's sold that he's a reliever, but he certainly didn't sell himself more as a starter by having that six-week ill-timed funk this year. And he, by the way, did not have an MRI. That was an incorrect report on my part on Friday. That He went to go see a, a doctor and said, you don't need an MRI. You're good. You just need to rest. So, uh, That's the college side. Now, and we don't have time to go through all the high school pitchers in this because it would take forever. But this high school pitching draft truly is a case of it's eye of the beholder in some ways, in that there's a whole lot of different ways that a team could go. But, but it feels like Clint, the high school class has been helped by the volatility in the pitcher of the college class. I think so, absolutely. I mean, uh, Tuki Toussaint is, is one of the highest rated high school guys that we have on the entire board. And honestly, at the end of the day, you walk away, and he could have the highest upside of any pitcher in this draft if everything clicks, if you know that 5 or 10% that everything clicks. And with everything just being muddled with all these other guys, I think he could be the biggest beneficiary of this because, you know, certainty being taken away, take the guy with the higher upside. So he certainly could factor in the top ten picks, um, if, if not a little higher than that. And at the end of the day, he has the best pitching body, might have the best curveball in this he's entire got, class. He's got crazy looseness. Yes, and he's, he's, one, he's one of the younger guys in the entire class. I mean, when he's going good, he's going to sit 92 to 96, touching some sevens. And the change and has the, change the tumble. Has improved dramatically. It, w- it was not. It was a non-factor last summer, but we saw it at the NHSI, and some people have said that it's at least a six, and have been willing to go 65 or better on his changeup when he is flashed. But because there was no clear third high school pitcher coming into the year, I believe we had Tuki as the number three guy because of ceiling. He's really made that preliminary ranking by Mr. Longnecker, who just deserves all that credit. He's made that look really good because he's he's made the improvements that an athlete is supposed to be able to make. And that's that's what you like to see. You like to see the a combination. The athlete. You like to he, see the, he's com- the best pitching athlete in the high school. He's the class. best he's the best pitching athlete, period, in the class. So you take that, good body, long arms, big hands. I mean, he's Gibson-esque physically. I'm sorry, he's Gibson-esque. He's always that's what he's always struck me as as is Gibson-esque because he's got those long arms. The ball is just not there's there's deception that's just natural. It's not manufactured. He has a chance to be very special. I don't know about the, the other high school pitchers have a chance to be special like Sean Reed Foley, Grant Holmes, most of the rest of the high school class, Spencer Adams. They have a chance to be good. 
But none of those, to me, Tukey is much closer to Kolick and Aik and Aiken in terms of ceiling than the other guys. They, oh. he, there's a separate, there's, I wouldn't say it's a cliff, but there's a pretty good group of three at the top and then the other high school pitchers. No, I couldn't agree more. And you, you mentioned both Grant Holmes and Sean Rick I think both of those guys are pretty similar. Um, even yeah. though Sean Foley is is a little taller, they both, you know, their fastballs can sit, you know, 91 to 94, somewhere in that range, while scraping a lot higher. And they both have plus breaking balls. Can I scrape it? <laughs> I, just to, I just wanted to scrape the microphone. I like the scrape. No one will hear if I touch. So, But if you scrape it, people hear. So. Natural strength. I think both of those guys are somebody... You know, are both they both profile as, as middle of the rotation starters? No, no question. And then, guys, we have these wild card high school pitchers who could go in the first round. JJ, talk about eye the beholder. Cody Baderos and Michael Kopech are the two wild card high school arms. Clint, that we have this kind of like this bunch of wild card pitchers uh, players. JJ. On our BA 500 from 32 to 41. This is the latest, last, final, I don't want to look at this crap iteration of the BA 500. <laughs> but Cody Medeiros and Michael Kopech, Clint, are the two guys who are in this group. And Kopech has the late helium. I think Medeiros does too. I wouldn't be shocked if the Royals jumped up and took Medeiros at 17 and then made him not long toss anymore. Sad face, John. But, <laughs> but Cody Medeiros has, and Clint just. They're like they're 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 a counterpoint to each other, right-handed and left-handed, low slot, but electric, athletic, present strength. It's just that this combination of their strength and athleticism allows them to pull off some things uh, delivery-wise that you wouldn't necessarily always teach. That's a great call because if you're just looking at the stuff, their stuff is better than where we have them, which is now in that thirty to forty range. Their stuff, no their stuff is probably better. They not probably it's better than Reed Foley. It's better than Holmes. Griffin. Better than Fall. Oh, absolutely great, great point. Who's like a touch field command lefty who has good stuff, but is never gonna have a seven. You know. But we, we, we have Maderos ahead, mostly because of the left handedness, correct? Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think a lot of the different factors with him. I mean both of these guys are just they're, they're great athletes first and foremost. But Maderos, he has taken a step forward this spring, and you know the uniqueness which might push him down some boards, I think, might be appealing to some other guys because, I mean, his arm slot. We're trying to look for comparables. We've thrown arm slot, you know, comparisons around. PV Bumgarner, a few of these other guys. Bumgarner is the one I think I like the best, to be honest with you. I mean, I don't know if he does it as easy as Madison Bumgarner, but as JJ knows, I swoon. I swoon when Madison comes on the TV. So he he is to me as Mookie Betts as the Dan Bear. So <laughs> that's put it, putting it in a little bit of an inside joke context there. With Maderos though, I mean it is incredibly easy, and at his best, he's gonna sit ninety to ninety three touching fives, and the changeup has improved. The changeup is at least a six, and he has maybe one of the best breaking balls. High school, I mean the the scouting directors did rate it as the best high school breaking ball in the entire class coming into the year, and that's just amazing from a low slot like that where you imagine. I mean, like some guys compare the slot to Brian Fuentes. I mean, that's how low he is, JJ. You just it's to it's, imagine that he has that kind of strength and and athleticism to maintain that release point and stay on top of the baseball. It's pretty remarkable. It is, and I think honestly, even just as much as that, if not more, is just. Because of that slot, he gets plus, if not plus, plus life, just being able to command that. That's it. You know, the guys with the filthy Which is stuff. inconsistent because he's yes. had some, like, five, six-walk games, even in high school, where he hasn't had that command. But I think half the time, high school guys are like, holy 
I mean, how? What do they do with that? What does a high school kid in, in Hawaii do with that? Yeah. You know, one of the really neat moments was uh, when when Medeiros was pitching at the Purdue game All American Classic, and Eric Burns, who was calling the game, when he first saw his slider, and as you mentioned, the, just yep. the tilt of it, three to seven tilt. Eric Burns' reaction was just phenomenal. He he couldn't believe the pitch that he saw because when you do see it from the TV angle and just to see the late tilt on that it is a monster pitch it's like a it's like a video game pitch because it's the that's, kind of thing you just don't normally see that's a great call and that of course does have uh, you know some negatives because being able to land that pitch consistently uh is is very tough and JJ, one thing i did want to ask you though we've talked about this a little bit as a lefty low slot guy the the, the and maybe i'm completely wrong on this but there's some concern in that you're going to face a whole lot of right-handers, and it would seem like that in some ways you're making it – I mean, you're going to destroy lefties. But in some ways it seems like you would make it a little tougher to get right-handers out because – even with a good breaking ball – because that low slot, they're going to get a good look at it. I'm glad you mentioned that because this is something that I was able to ask multiple evaluators, and no one actually agreed with me. But I think when we actually looked at the numbers and what the numbers support – just conventionally, lower slot guys, you're going to have larger platoon splits. And if you're left-handed, you're going to be, I mean, who are the guys that we looked at? We looked at Randy Johnson, Chris Sale, comparable guys, just the left-right splits they face in the average lineup. And the majority of those pitchers were facing between seven and eight right-handed hitters right. versus when, if we would go to the other side, if we go to the right-handed lower slot guys, Justin Masterson, you're going to be facing about four or five left-handed, right? A bigger split. Hitters. Yes, significantly. Randy Johnson by, by a multitude of at least two. Randy Johnson in a normal lineup on a normal night for his career, there was a lefty in the lineup against him because he was so good. Yeah, that everybody asked. Everyone that. was like, "Okay, I need a night off, Skip." <laughs> if Madero's again, right-handers, you can't do that because you do not have enough lefties to say, "Okay, well, we're going to go all left-handed in here tonight." And that brings Especially it. in this huge bull, bullpen, small bench era that we're in. That's which right. Is, which, is only, which is only accelerating. Right, and this plays into Kopech as well, who's not as low slot, but I mean, like, I'm just going back to like what you had last summer on Kopech, like totally unique arm action. Um, he's just, it's a, it's a little bit of a lower release point, but he has incredible flexibility. And you taught the guys this spring, and you know, it's three plus pitches, and it's up to 98. And he's a wiry, springy, just fast twitchy kind of guy. He's basically Aaron Nola with way better stuff. I mean, that's, that's, that's really Aaron Nola's body. Yeah. And Aaron Nola's a low slot and it's flexibility. Aaron Nola has better command than Michael Kopech, but in every other box you check Kopech. Yeah. And, I mean, the life that he's able to get from that, it's not Madero's esque, but it's certainly plus fastball life. And his delivery actually um, reminds me a little bit of Trent Thornton, not in the way the arm works. But the high but, start. Yeah, Trent Thornton, the, the North Carolina start, right-hander. Hip turn, a lot of those things before they break their hands. Another hip turn guy. Uh, you know, yeah. you're historically, you're thinking of big leaguers. Kevin Brown, to me, is the ultimate. Like, hip turn guy who had power sink. I mean, that was just electric life. I don't know if Kopech's going to ever be that big as Kevin Brown got to be just so broad-backed. He's from your neck of the woods, J.J., in South Georgia. But, again, South Georgia, if you want a pitcher, Spencer Adams, go South Georgia. You want a pitcher, Adam Wainwright. If you want a pitcher from Georgia, don't go to Atlanta. Go to South Georgia where they grow them a little tougher. So, like Te- J.J. Technically, Adam Wainwright's like, we'll give him – he's Savannah area. That's like kind of like East Georgia. Okay, but it's not, it's not Atlanta. Yeah. Don't go to Atlanta. Don't go to East Cobb. you got to go 
the rest of the state. So less pitching. I mean, they've let they've pitched less. Too. They've absolutely pitched less. That's why I love Spencer Adams. So I don't think he has this upside of these guys. He does. Have, he does have athleticism and upside though, Clint. That's and he's a little bit more conventional than Kopech or Medeiros. That's right. Honestly, I think I think his upside is is right up there because there is nothing that he really can't do on the mound. He's he's one of the best pitching athletes. He's he's one of the top three or four best pitching athletes in the entire high school class. The fastball, the further he's gotten away from basketball, it's sat ninety two to ninety five. Touch sixes at times, and he's another guy. He also gets plus fastball life. So it's it's bat breaking fastball life from a compact arm action. And the changeup has flashed plus, hasn't played there consistently this but spring. The slider. But the slider, that is a plus. And he's what you're supposed to look like. He's one of those guys, just great. Honestly, he kind of looks like a swimmer with, with his with his, uh, with his build. Delts, traps, yeah. a wide, <laughs> V-shaped torso. Tapered. Tapered. <laughs> Tapered and seductive are two of my favorite additions to the Baseball America uh, library of uh, inside jokes that Clint has introduced. We would be remiss if we didn't if we did not say that Michael Kopech has one of the best pitching bodies in the class. The, the physicality that he has from his frame is amazingly impressive. I mean, you see, you Waylon see Smithers in, would love you see him in Michael Kopech. Yes, it's uh, it, he's put together. My, my I shouldn't be making predictions because I've not spent the uh, the you know. 24-7 on this like you guys have been doing. But the thing that jumps out to me about this high school pitching class, we saw it when you go back to the Dylan Bundy, Archie Bradley, Jose Fernandez, Robert Stevenson, keep going. Henry Owens, I think, was part of that class. Mm-hmm. I, my prediction for this is what you're going to see is because there's so much, the quantity of high velo, you know, high school pitching in this class, you're going to see a guy or maybe a couple of guys who go 15 or later in this draft because that some team really likes that guy. And we're going to turn around a couple of years from now and go, wow, they really got a steal. Now, again, it's a lottery ticket in some ways, but we saw that like no one was concerned. People like Jose Fernandez, right? but no one was saying, you look at it in hindsight and it's like, why was Jose Fernandez not considered a top five pick? Well, partly it was because there was so much high school pitching in that draft. Yeah. That it was if you if lined your, it up. If your horizontal board lines up that way, and he's the fifth or sixth best, which is it's hard to value that in the top fifteen picks or so. And and where, whereas the thing about this is, if you put him in a different draft class, yep. it'd have been like, oh, this guy's the top five pick. I think there's still great the, point. Almost, very much a possibility about this year. Almost all these pitchers that we're talking about, if we were to put these guys in last year's class, who knows where they would go? Absolutely. I mean, like Hunter Harvey's had a nice start this year. He still doesn't throw a changeup. The arm's electric. And he's flashed premium stuff. Where would Hunter Harvey fall in this draft class? He's not. How different is he from Spencer Adams? Would you rather have Spencer Adams? Frankly, maybe it's just because proximity bias. I've seen him way more. I've never seen Hunter Harvey in person, but I think I think the upside is is just is just they're similar. High. Yeah, they that's are, what I'm they're saying. Similar they're similar. similar. The Kopex similar. Yes. Madero's is similar, if not a shade better. That, that's my. That's I. I'm agree with your point. I think you're last year. I would, and last year's, I think this year's class would stand out anyway. It really stands out because last year's class was so lackluster in terms of high school pitching. Last year's All American Perfect Game Classic had one pitcher who touched ninety four or better. This year, I remember right, there were eight. Yeah, it was like eight That's or nine. Like, you must that, throw ninety five to ride this ride in this draft. <laughs> I mean, it's like you don't throw ninety five. Well, we'll check back on you in the third round. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> that one got JJ excited. You pegged the meter on that one. That's okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm not even sure. Um, you know, we have, I don't think we have much time to talk position players, but we we talked we'll do about another it. one of these. But we talked about it a little bit briefly, Clint. Um, 
you know, outside of those, the college position player who seems like he has the most late helium is Alex Blandino. And even Alex Blandino has not got helium into the first 20 picks. It's more like in the 25 to 35 range. But this is a guy who, here's a guy. He's got 12 home runs. He plays third base, but he really looks like a second baseman. I think he's, what, 6'1", 185, mm-hmm. something like that. Average-ish build. Um, you know, we have Stanford on the TV on here right now watching the Bases Loaded channel. I mean, him and like, he, he just doesn't look like a first half of the first round guy. It wouldn't shock me if someone took him, like, say, 17th. You know, Max Pentecost, everyone in the country will get a chance to see him next weekend in Super Regional because Kennesaw State upset Alabama, and they also beat uh, – I don't even know if they played Florida State, but they, I don't think they ever played Florida State, but they won the regional down in Tallahassee. So good to see Max Pentecost after the draft if you haven't already seen him. But, you know, Max Pentecost is an athletic, Cape Cod League MVP, catch and throws, certainly improved, good hands. Uh, this is like, you know, one of the top five college position players. But, Clint, there's just not a lot out there. And I know we've said that all year. We've written it. As, are there some college position players who aren't first-rounders who you have any faith in? Is there like a deep cut in your area who you kind of like, or is it hard to have faith in somebody? Honestly, for the areas that I had, that was that was a little bit light in that area. That's where you got into some of the pitching depth. But um, just to go back to Pentecost, you know, yeah. we, we were speaking about him earlier today in the office, and I think just because of when he started to really hit, it's kind of it, it has been understated just how good of a year he has had. When you line up the statistics for our top two hundred high school or college college players, he has by far the highest batting average. And his his uh I mean he has a one to one strikeout to walk ratio and we're we're talking about potential comparable players and Jason Kendall's the guy who's being thrown around as a plus athlete behind the behind the plate who has natural feel to hit and you know certainly because of the injury his later career was was not that great but he was a really but good player in his prime in in his prime that was that was what an all star catcher looks like and also this is a guy who and to me the other comp I made I threw out there was Jonathan Lucroy who's a little bit more offensive player, uh, at least presently, than uh, you know, people remember Kendall, although Kendall's peak was very similar to Luke Roy's, uh, you know, and a little bit more speed. But Pentecost is a guy who's stolen 17 bags this year. Uh, he's a guy, again, who he, he didn't come out of nowhere. He was a seventh-round pick at a high school who didn't sign. And uh, so if this guy lasts longer than 10 picks, if he lasts past 12 at Milwaukee, I'll be really surprised. I don't think there's any way he gets past 15 with the Angels. He's got to be one of the first three college position players for me. Clint, who would the first college position player that you would draft? Who would be at the top of your board among college position players? Would it be Pentecost? Would it be Trey Turner? Or would it be Michael Conforto of Oregon State or someone I saw left out? That's a tough one. I think I think it's tough to pass up Trey Turner. I mean, I think that, that those three guys you mentioned, that probably is the consideration set. But, you know, Turner... Guys, guys have not really. Um, I mean, he's not. He's not had the statistical season that he had in years past. But at the end of the day, he's going to have to remake some things with the swing. But it's above average contact rates, above average bat speed, and oh yeah, he he led the ACC in home runs this year. He's got sneaky power. Okay, second, second behind Mike second. Happy. Sorry, yeah. still though. Late move. Production though, he still had. He produced. He did produce, even though he with, had an with average more year. Than walks. Yeah, and he had the ability to stay short. And with a team that was frankly. Uh, a mess around him. So it's it's a shame that uh, we don't get to see more of Trey Turner and Carlos Rodon at the college level just because they're fun to watch, and we were spoiled for getting to watch them for three years. Let's go back to the what we have is that wild card sort of territory back with the... Yeah, this will be a good way to finish. 31 to 41. 
who, who are some of the guys in there that, that you think maybe have a chance to outstrip that consensus of where we have them or somebody who could potentially take a tumble? You know, um, because Nick, of that Bur- Nick Birdie, it wouldn't shot me if Nick Birdie took a tumble. You know, his velocity was pretty non-Birdie-like last night. And he only threw a third of an inning uh, on the first game of the regional, and then he threw like one in the last game of the regional. He threw seven straight balls to start. I don't think I saw higher than 96. This is a guy who in April talked to some scouts who saw him 96 to 100 with a 91 to 92 slider. With that arm action and the effort in that delivery, I think he's fallen. I don't think I see Nick Birdie in the first round anymore. I know we've tied him to the Tigers. A little bit more recent intelligence basically tells us that that's not going to happen. Um, if I had to go with a college closer who's going to go out first, I'd say Nick Howard of Virginia. The guy with helium is Jacob Lindgren of Mississippi State. Got to give props to Jim Callis. And MLB.com had him 41 in their first time they did a top 100, and I thought that was crazy. And I still think that was too high. I don't think he'll – he may go higher than that, but I still think that he's not the 41st best prospect. They've adjusted theirs downward, and we keep on moving him up. And the more you hear about it, you know, he was really good at the SEC tournament, and it's a six fastball and it's a six breaking ball with a power slider, and he could move quickly. And his numbers are insane this year. I think the arm action for him is better and cleaner – than it is for, say, a Michael Cedaroth at San Diego State, or <laughs> I had to slip that in, or Nick Birdie. But to me, Nick Howard is the best combination of size, electricity, body, arm action. If you're looking for a college closer. Uh, the other guy in that wild card area who's intriguing to me is Michael Geddes. We saw him not so good at the NHSI, but I mean, he looks how they're supposed to look, he runs how they run, he's an athlete. Let's bet on the athletes. Let's bet on, as an industry, if I were truly in the industry, I would want ba- I want baseball to be more exciting to watch. And for that to happen, I want Jacob Gatewood and Michael Geddes to succeed. And I want those players to be drafted high and to be given full attention by player development staffs. And I want them to get to their power and make more consistent contact because we need guys like that playing every day in the major leagues. That's a great comment. I think he truly is the eye of the beholder high school position player right now. You know, I I had Georgia talking to some guys down there. Some guys would not touch him within the top two rounds. Yep. Some guys say there's no way that you can have him lower than 20. They like him in that 10 to 20 range. Right. So, I mean, at the end of the day, if everything hits, he's at least an all-star. If, if, yeah. If, if not better than that, every single tool is plus except for the hit tool. Um, like I said, this that that's that's how you, that's how you draw him up. He's the lottery ticket. Yes, he is. He's the, he, he is probably the biggest lottery ticket in the whole draft. Forrest Wall is sort of similar, but he's just not as athletic and physical. And speaking of physical, Kyle Schwarber, college position player, just loses the ball here in this, in this regional final, Clint. I mean, this is another – this is what the college class is. It's guys who can hit but don't have a position. It's or it's guys – Bottom of the defensive spectrum. Or, and it's guys who can hit but don't profile like Bradley Zimmer. Um it's just not a great college class, and that's that's one of the other reasons why it's so volatile. So this is also this is the uh, we've gotten this is the echo from the boom of the yeah. last pre-draft. You know, maybe this is what to wrap up on the last draft that we had, where you could spend whatever you wanted on. And so in that draft, yep. if you were a projectable high school guy, you got money because everyone had money to spend, and it was like we we're, this is the going out of business sale. Even the guys who made it through, I mean, Beatty turned down how much money? Two point five. Rodon turned down six, you know, high six figures. Turner turned down high six figures. So the industry identified the right players. They just, you know, some of them had higher price tags, 
it's pretty incredible to me that they identified all the right players and they didn't leave much for the college ranks. Within the next few days, we're going to have state lists going up all around the country with, with John handling the majority of those. John, from a college standpoint, within each of those states, how many would you say have at least average, if not above average, classes? Because in talking to guys in, in the eastern part of the, They're all below part average. Of the country, it is average at best. I would say Illinois and might be. Below average. Illinois and Indiana might be above average because they're pretty good teams. You know, University of Illinois, Illinois State, Indiana. But, yeah, no, no one is special. Oregon. State of Oregon's above average because yeah. Oregon State's loaded. Oregon's going to have five, six, seven guys drafted. Otherwise, I think it's below average. It's it's, uh, it's those, a sad state of affairs. Where the impact is just lower. Oh, just look at Arizona. I mean, Arizona has Arizona, which won a national championship two years ago. Arizona State's won five. Arizona's won four national titles. Uh, and, and the top players in that state college-wise are at Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon. So, such a grand <laughs> canyon. So... Uh, on that horrible note, uh, we want to remind you to visit dmarini.com to see the 2014 lineup of DeMarini BB Corbats, including the CF6 with D-Fusion Handle Technology. And don't forget Baseball America's draft offer. Subscribe now and receive one extra month of access with any premium content subscription. Go to baseballamerica.com slash subscribe to order today. Uh, Clint, any final words? JJ, do you have a final word before Clint does? Well, no. You're the, you're the host. You should have been the one to say I, I'm just, It's okay. You had the ad read. So. I'll just say that the Baseball America Top 500, which John mentioned earlier, we finalized the list for that. That will not be changing from here on forward. The, uh, the reports have been trickling in by midday tomorrow. We would anticipate that every single report should be on there. So um, if you're interested in the Top 500 players for the class, that's the place to find full reports. Sounds good, JJ. I think that's all I've got, and I think I will be on the draft show Thursday, 7 o'clock Eastern time. We'll see you there. So for at JJCoop36 and at Clint underscore BA, I'm at John Manuel BA. We'll see you in the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.